Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the high seas of global politics like we do every other week. Our listeners are usually used to Altamar offering a global take on global issues. But even though we're based in Washington, D.C., we do try to offer a non-Washington take on world affairs. But this time, we are diving deep into U.S. politics, and that's because of the midterm elections. And we'll be joined soon by our guest, Paul Maslin, who's a Democratic pollster and a campaign strategist, to help us analyze these uh, results that keep trickling in. At least the results we know, because as we are very much aware, some results take a very long time. So today, with a barely Democratic Senate, which was something that was not expected, and a House that most have projected to go to Republican, we will focus on the big picture, on the trends of current U.S. politics, on some winners and losers, the surprises, the takeaways, and of course, the impact on the world and the U.S. of the recent vote. So, Muni, I walked away from this election with a bunch of, you know, completely, probably badly organized, but thoughts that, you know, don't necessarily have one to do with the other that I, I, I wanted to share here. I, you know, the first one is the obvious one that with whatever the thing that people are saying on TV in terms of how this that the Democrats have beaten back the red wave. You know, it, let, let's rein in the ex- irrational exuberance. Let's let's be happy, but uh, rein in the irrational exuberance because the Republicans won. The House is probably going to go. And become and become Republican, and this is going to usher in two years of enormous bitterness and political circuses here in Washington. That's going to drive the Biden administration bananas with all types of impeachment proceedings, investigations, hearings, etc. So that that's point number one. But still, it wasn't a wave. It was. It did indeed turn out to be just a ripple. And the Democrats did far better than they anybody expected. And it proves once again that politics is a game of expectations. I mean, people are so impressed today because there were such bad mistakes made on the Republican side to pump up this election as being this red wave. Everywhere you looked on Fox, every Republican and right-wing MAGA news feed had, this is going to be a red wave, this is going to be a red wave, and it turned out that it wasn't. The losers, undoubtedly Trump is the big losers, but the extremists are also losers. You know, the the guy who was running for governor in Pennsylvania, who's a racist, anti-Semitic, really horrible candidate, and this is Trump's candidates, um, and they all, you know, not all, but a good many of them lost badly. The big winners are DeSantis and Biden. And I think most interestingly is the return of the independent voter after a decade of absence and everybody had declared the independent voter uh, dead. But, you know, the split tickets that occurred in a number of states were fascinating. People who voted for governor in Georgia, but didn't vote for the, uh, they voted for Governor uh, Kemp, but they didn't vote for Herschel Walker as senator. The same happened in Pennsylvania. Uh, in Wisconsin, in Arizona. And I think that's fascinating because, you know, at least it shows that people are sick and tired of the circus and the extremism. And so I think that those are some of the thoughts that I have together. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things is what is what's happened to the Hispanic vote. And Tess' take today is going to be about young Hispanics. 
Hi, I'm Tia Ivanovich, and this is Tia's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And today, I'll take a look at the Hispanic vote. And, you know, the Hispanic demographic, young or old, is very interesting to look at, because unlike the way that we describe it as one vote, it's not one vote. And migrations from various Latin American countries obviously happened at different times and migrants settled in different parts of the country. So these migrants often come and came from vastly different realities, right? Some fled political uncertainty and persecution. Others fled economic devastation and violence. And so they also vote very differently. So nationwide, Democrats won Hispanic voters 60% to the Republicans 39%. But that's actually a slight improvement for the Republicans over the 2020 presidential elections. And Democrats' strongest performance was among younger Hispanics and women, while Republicans did better with men and older voters. And Republicans had hoped to make big enough gains among Latino voters in 2022, extending their inroads from two years ago that would fundamentally realign this political landscape in several battleground states and the presidential map as a whole in their favor ahead of the 2024 elections. But Although Governor Florida Governor uh, DeSantis delivered on those hopes, he won heavily in Hispanic counties, um, that no other Republican candidate for governor or president had won in a generation, other Republicans were not able to keep up his pace. And in Texas, majority Hispanic counties, they swung to the right, but to a much lesser degree than they did in Florida. And so here's my take. Democrats are losing the Hispanic vote by focusing on culture wars and avoiding kitchen table issues like the economy and, well, immigration, right? Because in both Florida and Texas that I just talked about, the governors made immigration a huge part of their running platform. And so why aren't Democrats offering a solution for immigration or at least a clear opinion on immigration? More than double the share of Hispanic Republicans than non-Hispanic Republicans say that it's very important to allow immigrants who came illegally to the U.S. as children, DACA recipients, to apply for legal status. That's 33% of Hispanic Republicans versus 14% of non-Hispanic Republicans. And they also believe that they, they must establish a way for most immigrants that are currently in the country illegally to stay legally in the country. 28% of Hispanic Republicans believe that versus only 8% of non-Hispanic Republicans. So that's the fight. It's about long-term trends, about whether Hispanic voters' marginal shift in the GOP's favor this year will be significant enough to change the political landscape of presidential swing states such as Arizona and Nevada. Very curious to hear what you think. Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. So among all of this uncertainty, there are some hard facts already. The Democrats lost the House, complicating Biden's last two years. Republicans did not win as big as they had expected. No red wave. Democrats are holding on to important races and some actually performed unexpected upsets that led to doubts about Trump's endorsability or capacity to really support candidates. He, I think, was the biggest loser in this midterm elections. And then that must sting as he was expected to announce his presidential run any day now. And it's not clear whether that um, is going to have a, a huge impact. And it's also too soon for either party to have 
frontrunners, but one name has certainly floated up to the top and what I think is the biggest win in this election, which is Florida Governor DeSantis, who is Trump's nemesis and uh, has definitely come up uh, with, with a very, very big name. And when we zoom out, there is obviously the main concern that we all started with, an eroding democracy with a very divided uh, voting and uh, just the fact that people are celebrating that there was no political violence is a is a testimony of how this democracy is not not what it was so there's a lot to get to hey Mooney, just because we agree on the desantis thing can i tell you this great uh piece of gossip i had lunch with somebody yesterday who had told me the most machiavellian theory about desantis which is that desantis and governor kemp of georgia and um the Senate leader McConnell is going to are going to get together and they're going to try to sink Herschel Walker in Georgia, because if Trump is injured now, the electoral loss of Herschel Walker, his handpicked candidate in Georgia would put the dagger through the heart. And so they'll um, they won't send money to Georgia. They won't let act. They won't let third-party groups uh, do advertising in Georgia, and that that way they can kill off Trump once and for all. I thought that was like a, an unbelievable piece of Machiavellian gossip that I heard. I have no idea whether to believe any of. Well, that was a Machiavellian lunch that you had there. All right, there's a lot to talk about, so let's move to our guest who's Paul Maslin. He's been one of the leading public opinion analysts and campaign strategists for more than three decades. Paul joined the firm FM3 in 1993, founding the firm's Oakland office, and he's currently based both in Madison, Wisconsin, and in Los Angeles. After he began his career on the successful 1976 campaign of Jimmy Carter, he's advised dozens and dozens of senators, governors, members of Congress, big city mayors in every region of the United States, and he's polled for seven presidential candidates. Paul has worked on many ballot measures and is an accomplished focus group moderator, and he's written, commentated for a variety of publications and major networks, and Paul and I have worked together many times overseas on presidential campaigns. Paul Maslin, it's great to have you on Altamar. I'm happy to be here, Peter. Looking forward to it. So, look, the dust has partially settled yeah uh, not definitely not completely so in this what's your takeaways you tell people in an elevator it takes a little longer out west for that dust to actually hit ground um i'll give you three quick takeaways one that nothing really got resolved here this was turned out to be much more of a steady state election than we anticipated and i think that it's a continuation now this is really a generation of essentially this incredibly close political competition with neither side having any kind of dominant advantage, and, and that will continue. So on to the next one. My second takeaway is Donald Trump will never be elected president of the United States. Uh, whether he or his party, or more importantly, perhaps his party, realize that and can do something about that remains to be seen. But he was by far the big loser this week. Um, not shocking to me, but you know some other people perhaps. My third takeaway is a little more nuanced, but um, in, the, in the shorthand, I would say that I, I've sort of come to the theory that both parties are actually been forced or fated to develop the strategies they have, and they each are their own weakness and strength. 
from the Democratic standpoint, obviously, that has leaned very heavily on cultural and identity politics for a number of years now. And of the three key elements of that, which I would, I would argue would be suburban women, millennials, and minority groups, particularly Latinos, but also Asian Pacific Islanders, I wonder if it's the third, particularly now the Hispanic community, when you look at what happened in Florida and Texas, and we don't know yet what the outcomes will be in Arizona, Nevada, and a lot of those critical congressional races in California, whether that's the part of the Democratic coalition now that's getting a little bit frayed at the edges and may point to some more difficulty down the road. So those would be my three, if you want three. That's great. Can I pick up on that third one? Because it just seems like you know, the Republicans voted on the economy, inflation, and their version of culture wars. The Democrats, who were mostly running on the state of U.S. democracy and the fear of, of the demise of democracy, and on abortion. Um, and so who, who, who's right? Which, which set of issues is better? Well, I mean, it's a 50-50 election. Obviously, you can sort of argue that historically the Republicans had significant advantages given the state of the economy, inflation in particular, a midterm election where generally the out party is the one that has all the enthusiasm. They should have won big. They didn't, which tells you that the Democratic part of this, uh, unique again, it, it all, it's all been generated by Donald Trump. It was his appointees in the court that came down with the Dobbs decision. It, it's been, you know, his, he and his acolyte, acolytes who've been um, you know, monkeying around with our democracy, starting with January 6th and, and continuing, that was strong enough to produce essentially almost a draw in, in a year that should have gone heavily Republican. So it tells you that that each side has power and, and neither side can be comfortable with what they did being the be all and end all. Obviously, the next cycle and the next election will have different ramifications and things that we can't even anticipate. But I don't think either side, Peter, to answer your question, is right or wrong right now. I will say this. I don't think any either side, and this is true, we've had this discussion before uh, about a lot of developed and, and democratic countries in the West. Nobody has an economic message that is pers that can persist and, and succeed uh, for more than a short term. That's probably a product of globalization more than anything else. But you know, Democrats haven't solved our economic problems. And even if the Republicans have control of the House, that doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to somehow turn around people's economic fortunes. This has been a really expensive electoral cycle. And there were rivers of PAC and outside groups with hugely negative advertising. It seems that all the money Oceans. went to negative advertising against candidates of both parties. Is this going to be a trend from now on? Is this a, a, a juncture that is kind of makes this exceptional? Welcome to my world. Uh, nothing will stop it. Uh, the, the stakes are too high. The available resources are too great. Um, because neither side has a compelling positive message, it, it, is, it is always the, the default position of any particular campaign to run negative advertising and to have the various independent committees under our election laws and, and since the Citizens United decision for all these committees to essentially play in that part of the world. Uh, it's not edifying. It's not particularly uh, something that, that anyone part of the, that's part of the process feels proud about, but it is, 
it is our politics and it will get much worse before it ever gets better if it gets better Paul, it's it's almost old news that the red wave didn't happen. There was so much expectation that the Republicans would kind of overwhelm this election, and it didn't. It didn't happen. And and the question is really, why uh, were the polls wrong? Everybody always blames the polls. Are there underlying concerns within the Republican Party, or or they're just really bad candidates? You know, one little thing I do want to say because it does get into my uh, my area of expertise. I, I think it was pretty shameful what the Republicans did with polling in this cycle. I think there's no question in my mind that they manipulated polls and tried to push polls into uh, the public space, particularly these last two or three weeks, for purely tactical reasons. That, that I don't think most of those polls had a leg to stand on in terms of their methodology or their accuracy. And I think it was just blatant attempt to influence the, the political process. And that's pretty despicable. Having said that, most of the other polls actually had a fairly good night. Uh, the polls weren't particularly off. I think it was just the narrative and part of what, what reason I said, and then maybe just simply people thinking that this wave was going to be bigger and that, you know, and I, I, I'm pretty guilty. There were a couple of races I was involved in where I feared the worst. The worst didn't happen. Again, I'm going to go back to Trump. Trump is still their big albatross. Uh, and you know, either Trump or what he's done or what their party has become as a result of him or the reason why they accepted him to begin with is still their biggest weakness. Um, and he's still on the stage. We've never had a situation as unpopular as Biden was. We've never had a situation in my lifetime where there was this sort of Shakespearean figure just standing just off stage and sometimes on the stage that was even more negatively viewed and more unpopular than the sitting president. Um, so they still have major, major problems on their side uh, dealing with, you know, essentially the, the person who hijacked the party back in 2016. Having said that, my point, I'm sure you're going to ask me, but my party is hardly can feel happy about, OK, yeah, we, we're going to barely survive in the Senate and we're probably going to lose the House, but we're going to lose the House. Maybe it'll only be five or six or seven seats, but it's still five or six or seven seats that, that we will wish we had. So, um there are a lot of problems on both sides that come out of this election. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of irrational exuberance from the Democrats. And the fact is that they lost and and it's going to be a tough slog. Sort, sort, sort of. We didn't lose the Senate and we won some key governors. Well, we lost the I House. Mean, they I lost agree. the House. They lost the House. And that, that's going to create a very bumpy ride for the next two years. But I, I, I want to talk about it seems like we always get the same states creating uh, this anticipation of what's going to happen georgia arizona nevada i know why is it why is it the same <laughs> bunch of people every every yeah. cycle that that is that makes the rest of the country well, go bananas and and a little different i mean what happened to florida remember florida remember tim russell um and ohio uh but Part of it is, of course, just a, a you know an outgrowth of the Electoral College, which is on an entirely other subject. And and I think even the framers themselves would have re now realized what you know their mistake was. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't yet done anything about it. Uh, other than that, it's just it's the nature of it. I mean, I do liken this to the, these galaxies that are moving away from each other at, at rapid speed. There are only a few places left, Peter, that are truly, truly competitive. Uh, and Georgia happens to be one of them, and Nevada and Arizona happen to be two others, and there are a few other states 
Pennsylvania obviously is one. Wisconsin, where I've lived, is another. But there, there's just a handful of states that are truly competitive in any given election. And when and when so much of the election, yes, there are some candidate factors that have a have a, a role in these campaigns. There was some split ticket voting in certain states uh, uh, on Tuesday. But when so much of the election is the two tribes going to their corners and fighting it out, well, then you got to see, well, what's the balance of the tribes in Texas and Florida? Guess what? The tribes, in fact, are still very Republican in New York and California. The opposite. There aren't many states where it's truly, truly 50 50 competitive. And those are the ones we're going to see. And we'll see them again in 2024. So, Paul, I have a short segment here on Altamar about young voters, and um, and and this time I talked about Hispanic voters. And so Democrats nationwide won the Hispanic vote, um, but Republicans did make slight improvements. And what's interesting is that, you know, usually for young immigrants, what happens at their homes is um, dissipates in the second generation. But while that seemed true for Cuban-Americans for a while, with the arrival of, you know, Venezuelan, Colombian, Nicaraguan migrants, they've reignited this Latin American socialist hatred, right? And, you know, young immigrants seem to be as fired up and as angry as their parents are. So Democrats don't seem tough enough on on these socialist regimes. So have Democrats lost Southern Florida for a generation? Boy, um, I'm never going to say a generation because that seems to me, and maybe because I'm getting old when I think about a generation, it's like, well, wait a minute, you're talking about the time when I'm going to be gone. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far, I, but I think that, I think Southern, I think South Florida and what's happened in Miami-Dade is a perfect example. I think that is it is probably not going to be undone in any time real soon, uh, and certainly not with DeSantis standing as strong as he now stands, uh, whatever happens vis-a-vis him and, and Trump. So from that standpoint, yeah, I think it's a, a fairly significant loss, and it's, and it's not going to be rectified. The more interesting fight is happening, frankly, among Mexican-Americans, where I think some of the Republican inroads, they did make some in Texas, but I'm going to be real interested to see as we analyze what happened in Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, California, et cetera, whether in fact there is any slippage, whether it's happened a little bit uh, among younger voters. You know, at an L.A. mayor's race, ostensibly between two Democrats, that's Caruso, is claims now to be a Democrat. But of course, he really isn't. And that's a place where he did target the Latino community and he has made gains. So that may be the bigger ongoing story. No insult to Florida than than what you accurately described as the reason why the Florida uh, Hispanic vote has moved as, as dramatically as it has to the to the Republicans in that state. Paul, let's talk about something fun, which is the the, the coming cannibalistic fight between the two Tyrannosaurus Rexes in the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Trump wants to run again. Uh, DeSantis seems to be like the inevitable, inevitably running. You know, how is what's this fight going to look like in the Republican Party? And I, I, I told listeners, I told Mooney and Taya and our listeners before you came on about this this amazing story I heard about. Um, you know, maybe DeSantis and Governor Kemp in Georgia, and um, you know, the Senate. Uh, um, Republicans are going to get together to try to sort of put a final dagger in Trump through Trump's heart by not putting a lot of money into Herschel's campaign in uh, in Georgia and having Warnock win and therefore really killing him off once and for all. 
the irony because Trump is the one who cost them those those the two seats in Georgia to begin with. Um, so one thing I was thinking is, you know, we've never really had a, you know, Michael Corleone never really had to face the voters, you know. And so we've got a situation where this mob boss who's acting like a mob boss and even now is threatening. I'm going to I'm going to expose some things about Ron DeSantis is now out in the open with a real set of bad uh, facts uh, in terms of what just happened. But he still has voters that will live and die for him uh, within his own party. And Ron DeSantis knows that. And I just think it's a very curious dance that's going to happen with obviously potential legal uh, risk um, looming that might affect what Trump decides to do or not do. I'll simply say this. I can't predict whether and how they disengage from him. They need to, but they may not have the luxury. Uh, And if they don't, it will probably doom them in 2024. Um, But that's a lifetime away from now. Uh, And DeSantis certainly has put down his marker for everyone to see. Uh, and and ironic, of course, that Trump's in that state. I mean, you're, it really becomes just a, a potential bloodletting here. Uh, but we'll see. But I, th- I also think it's going to impact Biden. Um, if you said tomorrow that Ron DeSantis was going to be the nominee, there would be extraordinary pressure that would start to develop in the Democratic Party about who, who our nominee ought to be. And Joe Biden is not a fool. He understands that. If you said, on the other hand, it's still going to be Trump, well, then there's Biden, sort of the Horatio at the bridge. So let's go on for a little bit on that subject. The, the end of the midterms, of course, has been like the parting shot for the presidential race. And do you see any other contenders right now? It doesn't seem like there is a lot more than the three that we've mentioned. What about the Democrats? It was like a, a blue desert in politics today. Yeah, deserts can have a little more life than you think sometimes. Um, I think... Democrats are going to simply, I don't think anybody is going to, or anybody serious is going to challenge Biden until he goes through whatever process he's going to go through here. Um, Obviously, let's talk about the elephant in the room. He's at an age that nobody has ever run for re-election before. Um, And I don't know. And, you know, I hope that there are no health concerns. I, I hope that that you know, for the sake of the country, he's going to run the country for two more years. That 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 he's still sound, and and, and certainly have no reason not to think that. But I don't think any. I think the Democrats are essentially he's our guy, and we're not going to leave him until we get to a point where he may say, "Okay, it's somebody else's time." Then all kinds of things break loose. But we're not there yet. I think I think that DeSantis Trump dance, the dance of the dragons on the other side, is probably going to be what will hold everyone's attention here for a while. Uh, we we are sort of a second act, but we may have a second act. Um, again, I don't, my crystal ball is murky. Paul, let's move from politics to policy. Um, what's definitely sure is that the there is a narrowly divided government, which doesn't uh, yield a lot of progress. What do you think in in domestic polit- policy is most at risk? And then I'm going to ask you right after what um, what foreign policy is, is running the risk of being stalemated or stuck in a divided government? Yeah. 
Well, one thing I will say, and I, you know, again, I can't get into the heads of it, presuming it is Kevin McCarthy. I mean, there is a theory that says his speakership may be under some threat if if it's this narrow, the the the, the majority. The fact that they don't have the Senate, I don't know how much crazy town in terms of indictments and investigations. I mean, some of them are obviously going to happen, but but whether they will have some kind of pullback and realize that, you know, I mean, what did they run on? They, you know, they've run on a number of issues that, um, you know, you would think that they would try on the economic front to achieve something. Uh, there may be more commonality here. If they only have a four or five seat majority, then frankly, not not every one of those Republicans is dyed in the world you know, right wing conservative Donald Trump, um, they have a different situation on on their hands. So I think there may be a little bit more room for compromise with all three sides, essentially saying Chuck Schumer trying to protect a majority, Joe Biden running for reelection, Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to just sort of be speaker just for a minute and then be gone again, um, where there may actually be some better possibilities to actually achieve something. And I think particularly on the economic front, that's where you know, again, I, I would think that there is more potential common ground here. Um, I say that I'm not a policy expert. I'm just trying to analyze it through a political lens. Um, the culture stuff and the huge divisions on those issues don't change. And that's where Republicans have to feed their beast. So I presume that they're going to do a bunch of things that they know Biden will veto, but they have to do it. So you're going to have at least the the appearance still of a very divided, contentious government but not so, if Chuck Schumer is still majority leader, it won't be the same thing as if the Republicans had won the entire Congress. That is different. Again, it's an if. We don't know yet. But I'm presuming this would presume Arizona and Nevada both go Democratic or the runoff, if not Nevada. So, Paul, I, I want to go back to the election because I do think there's one piece of good news that that you and I should talk about as campaign people, which is it seems to me that there's been a bit of a return of the independent voter. We all thought the independent voter was dead and uh, we were we were we were saying our blessings and um, there we are. He sort of resuscitated a, a bit. You know, if you look at Wisconsin or in Pennsylvania and in Georgia, these split ticket votings that people have done voting one way for governor, another way for for uh, for Senate and House. Um, you know, it seems to me that that's good news. I mean, I, you know, maybe the, the people, maybe I wouldn't have voted the way these split ticketers voted, but I, I do think it's good news when people start saying, wait a minute, I'm going to, I'm going to start choosing the person. And it's not just an ideological freight train that can't stop. And it's partly a product of the fact that <laughs> we have a right direction, wrong track in this country that is, you know, just incomprehensible, right? I, Patty Murray is my client. She won re-election in Washington state. In our last tracking polls, the number of people in Washington state, she's an incumbent senator who's been there for 30 years, part of the Democratic leadership in control of the Senate. The right direction for the country among Washington state voters was something like 16%. Um, so part of, Peter, what you said, which I agree is a positive development, comes from a negative source, which is these independent voters look at both sides and see utter total failure and chaos and dysfunction. And so that's making them a little bit more of a free agent. I might trust you, but I won't trust him or her. And so I will split my ticket. I'll, Brian Kemp, okay. Herschel Walker, no. I mean, so 
yeah, but it's still coming from a place, unfortunately, where things haven't worked very well. And so really the question is, if things continue to not work very well, neither side can get a major foothold, and then these swing voters become even more important. The real question is, does either side have the ability to start to win them over for some kind of more commitment and a longer term? And your guess is as good as mine as, as whether either side have that ability right now. Nobody is succeeding. Okay, so last question. We got, we got about a minute. So given what you just said, are you then worried about the health of our democracy and where it goes in the next five to 10 years? Before Tuesday, I would say that we were headed to deep into the emergency room of the hospital on this subject. Now we've been moved slightly away from that, but we're still in some kind of semi-intensive care unit. Um, I am still extraordinarily worried about the health of our democracy, just because some election deniers lost, and as of yet, nobody has put up a fight about the returns, and nor did nor did Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil a week ago, shouldn't give us some comfort that all these questions have dissipated. I'm still very worried about the health of our democracy and you know, and, and, and will be, I think, for some time to come. We got a bit of a reprieve on Tuesday. That may all be all that it was. Paul Maslin, thank you, my friend, for joining us on Altamar. Anytime, Peter. You know that. Peter and Thea, I think the last question was very telling because the fact that we are asking about the U.S. democracy, growing up, it was the ultimate democracy with the strongest institutions and how quickly institutions start to falter, how quickly violence becomes part of the conversation and governability becomes a question rather than a given. I feel for uh, not only the aftermath of this election, but the next two years that are going to be tremendously contentious. Boy, I, that's a, a sad commentary that I could not agree with more. I mean, that if, if only the people who are pining to come to America, who trek through the Darien Gap and through the difficulties of Central America and, and try to avoid violence in Mexico, they come to America because they believe in something is different there that they don't have at home and Americans no longer believe it. And so they behave as if this is all sort of lost and therefore we only have our team to build up and to support. And so I, it's a, it's a really sad commentary on where, where we are today. And I do think, however, there is one party that with all warts and blemishes and ugliness does not represent that. And one party, thanks to former President Trump, that has come to represent this sort of the, the, the anger and resentment and violence and non-acceptance of others that I think is pulling America down in a really dangerous place. No, I couldn't agree more with both of you. And, um, you know, talking about the, the migrants that have come, um, you know, speaking of the Hispanic vote today, I, I just can't understand, um, you know, no matter how a certain government acts towards your former government, I understand that's important, but yet there are other things that are 
even more important, I have to say, and that's a democracy, a woman's right to choose and, and other things that um, I believe people should should vote on and um, that will really tell the future of, of where this country is going. So with that negative note, <laughs> um, you know, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and we hope you do. Uh, don't forget to rate and review us, which helps us out a lot. Sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter uh, where you get analysis on global trends and we will see you next time. <laughs>